Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Well, welcome everyone. Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today I'm joined by Dr. Nasha Winters, one of the leading uh, oncologists in the US, US, if not the world. And uh, as part of her strategy, we're both in total alignment and agreement that the primary way to prevent is to treat cancer is to prevent it. No question about it. And the best way to prevent it is to be metabolically healthy. And guess what? When you're metabolically healthy, not only do you prevent and treat cancer, but you prevent and treat virtually every single disease known to man. So there's enormous benefit to this. So she was meeting with her team and then not too, not too long ago and realized, well, I'll let her tell the story. But essentially, there's this metabolic health day that we're here to discuss and promote and establish perhaps a new ritual on the uh, calendar. So with all that backstory, welcome and thank you for joining us and we'll dive in. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Doc. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your graciousness in doing this and getting the word out. You have such a meaningful reach out in the world and people listen to you and follow your, your lead. And you have been one of the thought leaders and promoters of metabolic health for, my God, going on 30 years. Is that what we were discussing? So yeah. this is really, really powerful that we're having this conversation. And you alluded to it over the summer. I spoke at nine different, I was nine different lectures at five different conferences over six weeks globally. And only one of those was actually a ketogenic metabolic conference, but the rest were general health conferences. And the theme is, as you mentioned, metabolic, 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 that all the diseases affecting us today cardiovascular disease, dementias and Alzheimer's, even into the autism realm, obesity, diabetes, on you know, cancer, all of these things have a, a common denominator, which is the metabolic brokenness that we're all facing today. And I think you and I had a really great conversation at the pool a couple of weeks ago at a conference in Orlando. And what we were quoting the the 12% Americans being metabolically yeah, yeah. in 2018 and then in what yeah. 2000 20 only well, specifically, that study was in the Journal of American Car College of Cardiology in July of last year, and it referenced the NHANES data, uh, which is probably the best collection to do that. And it was last year, but the, obviously it takes time to correlate and collect the data and analyze it. So that data was from 2018, and it showed 93%. 93% were metabolically unhealthy, and that's five years old. So it's got to be over 95%. For 19 out of 20 people are metabolically unhealthy, unfit, unbelievable. inflexible. Unbelievable. And this is why we decided when I came back from those conference, we started looking as a team of like, how can we, I mean, we're in trouble, right? We're, this is going to bankrupt our entire medical systems globally. Um, and it's oh, good about the finances is going to cause everyone to die prematurely. Exactly. And we're seeing that already. Right. And so we came back and we're like, Okay, great. Let's let's find out what the day is to celebrate this and let's do something about it. Do an awareness campaign. Well, the day didn't exist. We have Love Your Donut Day and, you know, Big Gulp Day and Pizza Day. We have all of those days out there, but there's nothing around truly 
you know, creating wellness or prevention of these chronic illnesses that are bothering us today. So I was so excited. And we're like, well, we're going to be the ones to kick it off. And in doing so, we have been joined by dozens and dozens of organizations from researchers, hospitals, clinicians, to found family foundations, to really powerful thought leaders like yourself, um, people in the testing environments from uh, blood tissue assay world to uh, genomic testing to ketone and glucose testing companies, you name it, we're all joining forces. At this point, we have a probably over 5 million reach at this time. It was 4.5 last week, but we've added a few more big uh, sponsors to this event. So we hope to get this message out to millions of people in the weeks leading up to the inaugural Metabolic Health Day launching 1010, October 10th, 2023. We don't expect this to be the last. We hope it's the first of a grand movement. And we're very proud to be partnered with so many people like yourself in getting this information out there because we're we're in trouble if we don't. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you've applied for the formal process of actually adopting it as an official day, you yes. know, like, like the donut. So you have done that. Is that a, is that a difficult challenge to do or is it just fill out the paperwork? It's filling out the paperwork and now we wait. So we are in the process of that. And of course, you know, your dog could have a day and make that happen, mm -hmm. but we're in the process. We hope within the next few weeks or the few months this does become an official adopted day internationally that we can come back to again and again, but we didn't want to wait for it to mm -hmm. become, you know, we thought we'd get the ball rolling. What's interesting is 1010 also happens to be mental health day. And we didn't realize that, but it's actually a beautiful merge of these two because we're finding more and more. You've probably interviewed people like Chris Palmer on your site or some of the others that are looking at metabolic psychiatry and the mm -hmm. un underpinnings of even our, even our mental health as it relates to metabolic health. Well, there's no question, you know, there's clearly one of the greatest contributors to disease and dysfunction and metabolic dis dysfunction is uh, stress hormone increases. And that could be from metabolic issues, Typically, but it's certainly and absolutely, and maybe even dwarf the metabolic issues is emotional or psychological issues. Yeah, it's huge, huge. And, you know, our standard, they define metabolic health as having a, a good hip to waist, you know, waist to hip ratio, having good lipids, whatever that means in their terms, good glucose levels. They talk about having good stamina. And even the ranges that our standard of care is giving is just too lax. So, you know, you and I've talked about, you know, body fat content. We've talked about metabolic health with regards to insulin regulation. Um, they're still saying that it's normal to have a blood glucose of a hundred, you know, that's, that's really not, that's kind of no. the highway to the next step of things. They're focused more on the overall cholesterol and overall LDL, but really the issues we want to look at are more the triglycerides and the HDL. So even in our world, the functional medicine and the metabolic health world, we look at a little different ranges of what we want to focus on for true prevention and treatment of conditions. One of the coolest things you and I have talked about is you're on a huge mission right now to educate and empower about the linoleic acid slash omega-6 you know, conundrum that we're in here, which you're 100% right. We need to be addressing those at the same time. If we were all as likely to be you, less than 5% of the population, we could just primarily focus on lowering of the linoleic acid. But our No, no, no. It's not less than 5%. It's less than, and this would be generous, 0.5%. Yeah. It's probably 0.05% who have 
optimally healthy linoleic acid levels. Uh, it is well under one in a thousand, maybe Amazing. one in 10,000. And yeah. that's the place here. It's like, we have to, we have to do more work now to achieve metabolic health. And so mm -hmm. where I'd like for you, for your listeners to hear this and how we can best support and inspire them. I know what my favorite to do's are to help enhance metabolic health, but I'd love to hear from you what your top three would be. Well, sure. I'm happy to do that. But before we go there, I, one of the questions in my presentation at the Orlando event, and by the way, we were at the pool, not because we were sipping margaritas, <laughs> but it was the healthiest place to be in an event at a conference. Typically, uh, you know, if you go to a conference, you are indoors all the time and it's the furthest and they're serving you terrible food and you're not getting any sun exposure. So we said, the heck with this. We went out to the pool side where it's socially acceptable to take your shirt off, which I indeed did did do in a heartbeat and got sun exposure and we able to have a wonderful dialogue. So during my presentation there, though, one of the questions after my, after I gave the presentation was a really good one. And it wasn't one I had reflected on recently. And it'd like, and we, I think we concluded in real time because you were there sitting in the front row of my presentation and kind of agreed with what I thought. The question was, what is the best way to simple blood test to identify metabolic inflexibility? Excellent question. And there's a lot that you can use to support that diagnosis. And you alluded to some of the variables, but it would seem that insulin resistance is the core of this. And the, the, the primary way to measure that is simply a fasting insulin. And typically the standards would be below three. I used to test mine all the time when I was doing Quest as a laboratory and they didn't uh, go lower than two. You can have a, a insulin level of 0 0.1 and it would still say less than two. So, you know, basically that was the arbiter, but I switched to using LabCorp now in addition to Quest and they will actually give you levels below two. So the first LabCorp test I had done was 1.9. So, so, so ideally, I think we concluded that an insulin level under three is a, is a good goal. Fasting insulin, fasting, fasting insulin. So, I think that's a good place to start. And I think it should be a dialogue. And, you know, I am about at least 15, if not 20 years removed from being in the trenches and treating patients. So I've got some ideas on insulin resistance on how to, how to resolve it. But what do you do to address someone who is eating a pretty healthy diet? It's got a pretty good regimen going on with respect to their mm -hmm. movement and that physical activity. And yet their insulin level is seven or eight. Yeah. Well, or, that, or higher. Yeah. And when I, what, what you show me when you, when you see that, when someone's eating well, when they're, maybe they've been carb restricted for years, maybe they're really mindful about uh, lowering linoleic acid and any of those seed oils from their diet. If it's still revving above three and someone who would theoretically be metabolically healthy and they don't have any other parameters that standard of care says are problems of metabolic health. So their hip to waist ratio is excellent. Their blood pressure is excellent. Their glucose is excellent. But when I still see high insulin, I'm asking mm -hmm. questions of what's going on with stress. You is mm. when cortisol goes up, insulin goes up. Okay, so what what do you define? What are your metrics for defining metabolic stress with cortisol levels? Because it's such a variable. I mean, the the cortisol pulses. It's not like like a it's not like your blood cholesterol at all. I mean, it definitely is influenced by time of day and it's, it's a diurnal cycle. So what, what do you measure throughout the day? Do you do urinary testing 24 hours or what are your, what are your metrics? 
So that's a really great question. For me, I look at a CBC, complete blood count, because- How, how does that impact insulin levels? I'll tell you, you can see a lot when you have people with chronically de um, depleted white blood cells. Really? Completed white blood cells is often a, t a sign. So are chronically elevated for no other reason, ASTs and ALTs. Mm. That's starting to show us early fatty liver, which has a cortisol insulin relationship as well. So that's my cheap person's kind of surrogate test. The next test is an AM cortisol. Mm -hmm. So is it really fasting or first? Uh, is it, does it matter how long it is after you wake up? Great is question. If folks are 12, I want them 12 to 16 hours of fasting. Mm -hmm. If they're more than 16 hours, cortisol is going to naturally go up, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So you don't want to push it into that natural physiologic state that's supposed to happen when you're in a you know fasted state. So you want to get it before that, but you need more than 12 hours, you know, 12 hours or more to clear the daily, you know, the previous day's events from your, from your body. So 12 to 16, if someone's been a, a long-term moderate carb intake and fast comfortably for no less than 13 hours, mm -hmm. I think, I think 13 to 16 is fine for those who are really new. Um, 12 might be all you can handle and that's okay. So that yeah. morning cortisol and that fasted state is going to tell us a lot. So if it's below 15, 15 to 17 is my happy place range. Really? So you you, yeah. you, you, if there's a problem, if it's lower, there is a problem if it's lower, because that is it that you can't dis discern exactly what's going on without a 24 hour mm -hmm. you know, uh, diurnal testing throughout the day. So you can understand the pattern of the rhythm, because it could be that it's a, a, a false, like maybe your insulin had spiked in the morning and dropped, you know, brought up your cortisol or your cortisol spiked in the morning and brought up your insulin. It's going to be hard to tell without that more spot check timing, but you can get that further. So if somebody has low, that could also elude, they've been in a long-term stress response that no longer is even blipping their cortisol on the screen. I often and by low, that. you mean under 15 fasting. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And I see that in folks who've really been through the ringers with a lot of metabolic, you know, or a lot of um, conventional oncology therapies, for instance, it really kind of wipes them out over time. In the beginning, that cortisol will be elevated, right? And so mm -hmm. the elevation is anything above 17. So if people are revving above the 17 mark, they're kind of in a run from the saber tooth tiger push on a mm -hmm. pretty regular basis. Again, we can tell on a times four ASI adrenal stress index test where you're checking at these spot points first thing in the morning, mid-morning, mid-afternoon, right before bed. You can see the pattern of the circadian rhythm. And a lot of people in our world today have what we call a switched circadian rhythm. So they're cortisol and their insulin are actually really high at night, which makes it difficult to fall asleep and stay asleep. Mm -hmm. Or they have where that's one switch the other thing that can happen is folks who have a normal diurnal rhythm, but it starts to spike early, that's also a cortisol. So maybe that 3 a.m. wake up call when you're waking with your busy brain, that's going to shoot up your cortisol and your insulin levels as well and create this dawn effect with elevations in your blood glucose and in your insulin levels. So we can get a little bit detective-like with this and really understand the pattern of the individual so we know where to best support them. Yeah, and you you would expect a person who's been doing chronically low carb, and by that I mean technically anything under 150 grams a day. But yeah, I mean some people take it below 50 grams, some people even below 20 grams a day, which is ridiculously unhealthy. But that that yeah, dawn, 
my friend. You got to be, you got to speak to normal and cancer metabolism though. They're very different. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, well, cause you, 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 well, maybe we can tangent there in a moment, yeah. but, but for, for healthy people, they really need the, the carbohydrates to, to minimize the cortisol response. So that if you're on the low carb approach that, uh, you are going to have an elevated cortisol for sure. The dawn phenomena becomes really con- very persistent and may actually start about, you know, shortly after midnight, two or three o'clock. Yeah. And you can see it on those ASI tests and that's our feedback loop. And mm-hmm. so you're absolutely right for that. And I would say, you know, for someone, and this is what's hard is when we qualify healthy, you and I've already talked about this, less than 5% of us would fall in that category. So it's tricky, <laughs> right? And so, yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But once you do, like, if you really have worked hard, if you have been, maybe you're dealt, dealt with a cancer diagnosis and you have a different metabolic process than you do in a non-cancer environment, you may need to carb restrict in that window. But people like myself and the folks that I train, we know to watch for when we need to alter the diet to the individual's needs to their recovery, to their, you, to, you know, for protein sparing, you know, like for loss of muscle mass, like things that we have to really watch for. And we are testing our patients monthly. So we're not, you know, we're not. Uh, well, this is, this is a good segue because clearly, and this is what, you know, my current thought is on this and it probably yeah. is going to change next week. Who knows? Because it's just it's an evolving progression as you get gather more data. But my current thought is that as you mentioned, 95% or more of the population is metabolically inflexible. And it seems this, I mean, that's the vast majority of the population that, but this is the, the, the people who would likely benefit at least initially from a low carb approach. So I, I suspect you agree with that. And if you agree, what metrics are you monitoring to know when it's time to get off of this? Or would it just be monitoring this, the fasting insulin level? Are there, are, are there other uh, items that you care to review? Sure. So really important when we do our onboarding for a new patient who's coming to us with a diagnosis of cancer, this is a different metabolic process. And you can listen to Dr. Mercola and I's discussions on this in previous lectures or previous meetings. But ultimately, we get a baseline insulin, C-peptide, hemoglobin A1C, insulin growth factor, the CMP, which is the metabolic profile, which has glucose. We also look at an LDH and LD isoenzymes, the lactase dehydrogenase, which can be a really big clue of what's happening um, in the mitochondria and what's happening in just our metabolic health in general. We look at triglycerides. So if those are elevated, we know there's some fatty liver issues, the AST, ALT, GGT. These are liver enzymes that also can present in that way. Most of our patients by that time also get on a, um, a, a, a blood glucose as well as blood ketone um, testing to make sure they're nailing their macros at that time to make sure it's working for them. So we get them started with kind of a foundational look. Then we look monthly at a CBC, CMP, and trifecta, CRP, sed rate, and LDH. So we can see if we're moving the overall metabolic terrain into the right direction. And why are you doing sed rate instead of uh, yeah. HSCRP, which seems to be more sensitive? We do, H- we do HSCRP as well. So that's the part of the okay. trifecta. So that's one okay. of you know, the HSCRP or quantitative CRP. Some countries we work with can't get the HS. So quantitative, because to your point, like if it says below two, well, 1.9. Pretty- right, right. So in our world, a CRP above one is, is dangerous in the oncology world. A yeah. sed 
above 10 is concerning for thick, sticky blood patterns, autoimmune patterns, chronic inflammation. LDH can have a variety of reasons why it's elevated. It's most often in the cancer world related to a cancer cancering process, but it can also show us the tissue of origin that's in distress, um, whether it's the bone marrow, the kidney, the heart, the liver, the lungs, we can really get that down. So that monthly testing shows me, are we moving the ball forward to, you know, together? If it's still wonky and it's not responding for whatever the reason is, because it's always going to be an N of one, we'll dig a little bit deeper. But ultimately, we don't repeat those other tests like the insulin and whatnot for three months. So we do a quarterly check-in on these patients. Once a patient goes into remission or goes into a strong stability of their cancering process, we're looking every, every month until their trifecta is perfecta. Then we move them to every three months for the first two years. Then we move them to once or twice a year, depending on their history. So we're watching this closely. And there definitely comes a time and a place when you can expand their horizons on the dietary front. So as an example, for somebody like me, I've been you know, restricting carbs for so long that I can now eat a pint of berries. It doesn't do anything to my CGM, doesn't do anything to my blood glucose, to my ketones. My body knows exactly what to do with that sugar. But it was never, it wasn't like that in the beginning. I would look at a raspberry and it would cause me problems, right? And so we all anyway, have- For those who don't know, you are a cancer survivor, which is what catalyzed your interest into this field. Exactly. Thank you for that. And that's just it is, um, you know, the, the same month that we're launching Metabolic Health Day on 1010, on 1021, 1991, I was given several months to live with an ovarian, in-stage ovarian cancer diagnosis. So it is near and dear to my heart. And I do very much recognize the differences in the metabolism of somebody who's dealing with cancer and the metabolism of somebody who's not. And so when you get yourself flexible in the healthy state, you have and should be able to tolerate carbohydrates when you're a, a nice, flexible, you know, engine here. That's what's so sad is we have a long way to go culturally, worldwide to make that the case. And that's where we really are um, so grateful for your helping with that message because you are a champion of this. You are a champion of people also being even more clear about what may be in tandem, if not worse, the driver of insulin resistance and metabolic instability is the inflammatory induction um, process that's happening with linoleic acid and the seed oils, which is also a new invention in our modern times that is is killing us rapidly, rapidly. Okay. Well, I want to address that, but I want to put that on the table for a moment and we go back to these metrics, and, and which precipitates a fundamental question. Do you think that there is a aberration in the physiology of someone who's acquired cancer, developed cancer, such that they would benefit from long-term carbohydrate, relatively long-term carbohydrate restriction, as you appear to be under, which I was surprised to hear because I didn't realize that until just now. Because in my view, you know, once you've addressed that, you should be able to get to higher levels. And depending on your activity level, I, I think the minimum amount of carbs you want to get is 150. But if you're really active, you can go to at least 500 or four or 500, depending on how your size, which is what I do typically every day. It's pretty uncommon where I'm not over 450 grams. Uh, now, I've never had cancer. So the, 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 I guess the, do you feel that there's a phenotype that develops yeah. because of the cancer and that you need to be overly cautious to 
prevent a reversion to that phenotype so that you don't get a metastasis? Absolutely. I love this question because this is the biochemical individuality, the, the epigenetic individuality. So for instance, some of the phenotypes such as the ADIP um, OQ gene, the ACSL1 gene, um, those are basically you were wired to be diabetic. I mean, that's the places this is naturally an environment that just has a tendency to fall into insulin resistance categories. There's dozens of others, but those are the two big ones that come to mind. In the oncology, like the blood biopsy or the tissue assay world, if we see PIK, so the, the, the um, PIK3CA, the, the kinase um, issues, that is 100% glycolytic metabolically pushed and it's in 70% of cancer types. And it's far more, it also makes for a much more aggressive and progressing cancer and a much higher recurrence rate. So we're very, very careful with folks with that particular genetics to um, what you can also retask is over time when you re, when you're treating that um, body, it may no longer express that that in its tissue. So we also check in on that periodically, right? So just because you tested P10 loss or BRCA here or there or different things, a lot of people think that's static and forever, it will change. You can change that with whatever therapies you're introducing into the system. So if that changes, then you can obviously change the way you're going to feed it or not feed it. But if you have that, you have to probably be a little bit more on watch and how you're dealing with that. And then to your point of, um, you know, my, my mantra is you've had me speak a lot on your show is test, assess, address, don't guess. And so this is the beauty of things like HRV devices, heart rate variability, because um, that can show your sleep patterns and suggest what's going on with your diurnal cortisol, which will also show how that's impacting your blood sugars. But you can also be doing continuous glucose monitors. See how you do each time you eat something when you start to explore and be a living laboratory. Um, my husband has a lot of those SNPs we just talked about around the diabetes Everyone in his family dies of diabetes, complications of diabetes, and cancer. It's just like a package deal. He loves, like he needs more protein. He's incredibly active. He's incredibly fit. But if he gets too much red meat, his insulin goes sky high. So he has the genes for that. So we have to even be careful of how somebody like that you're perceiving, like in the carnivore world, I want to check their blood sugars as well, because we get to this belief system that, oh, I'm not taking any carbs in, but the gluconeogenesis that can come from even too much protein in certain phenotypes needs to be thought after, you know, needs to be, be monitored. So this is the beauty where I could, I would love to be a vegetarian. That's what my palate wants, but my body says no way. And, you know, TMI for your listeners, but as I'm moving into perimenopause, my body needs different things. And I know I need more protein now. I feel it and I always feel better. And my body composition regulates when I um, have more protein and carb restrict, but my body then uses the gluconeogenesis of the protein to fuel me versus that of the simple carbs to fuel me. And so it's a really interesting thing that I'm just listening to my own body, letting my own labs drive the show and tell me where I'm, where I'm going on the right path or not. And the same with our patients. And so we adjust accordingly, which is really, it's fun. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, I like that side of my, my world. I like being the detective. I like to get curious with people and see what's making things happen. I'm, I'm dying to look at your labs. I wish I could knock down watermelon in the way that you do, but um, you know, maybe goals, you're giving me goals here in uh, the next few years. Um, but I, I think it's just really an end of one on this process. 
Yeah, it's pretty uncommon where I'm not having at least three pounds of watermelon in the morning. That's without the rind. Sometimes it's four, even five. Um, but the getting back to the LA issue, and you had mentioned that there's some inflammatory processes going on there. So most of my listeners know that I've written a paper earlier this summer, uh, narrative review on LA. And in the process of writing that paper, it was a peer review paper. So we had four peer reviewers and one of them was giving me such a hard time, but he brought up a really good point and provided some good data for it that there, the concern about inflammation from linoleic acid is that it's, it's a, that's an 18 carbon huh. and it is transferred to a 20 carbon, which is called arachidonic acid, which is the classic pro-inflammatory uh, omega-6 fat. Uh, and that is the speculation as to why increasing linoleic acid was, was causing problems because this increases inflammation from the arachidonic acid. Well, it turns out that's not the case. Interesting. Yeah, it isn't the case at all. And he provided some really good data to support that. So I said, okay, well, that's off. So then, well, what's causing it? It, it, it doesn't appear to be inflammation. There may be a, a small component, but that's not it. There's, there's one component that I addressed in the paper and another that I neglected and just relearned recently. But the one I put dressed in the paper is that linoleic acid has two double bonds and these double bonds are highly perishable, susceptible to oxidative damage, could be light pressure, oxygen, combination of any of the above, heat. Um, and when it's those double bonds are damaged, they pr produce an oxidative metabolite. These are typically reactive aldehydes like 4-hydroxynonanol, uh, methoxyglyoxal, glyoxal, uh, malondialdehyde, uh, acrolein. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of these things. And it's these toxic reactive aldehydes that damage the tissues. We believe that's one mechanism. But there's an even more fundamental physiological and metabolic component in that PUFAs, mm -hmm. LA specifically, is anti-metabolic. What the heck does that mean? Yeah. Well, it goes in there and it literally decimates mitochondrial function, accelerates death and, and dying. It does this through increasing reductive stress, which we're not going to go into now. But one of the other mechanisms is that at, um, PUFAs uh, and estrogen, interestingly, which is pretty similar yeah. uh, biochemically, because it also has double bonds. Uh, go, one of the, the it, it, it actually causes calcium to go inside the cell. It increases intracellular calcium concentrations because it's concentration outside the cell of calcium is 50,000 times higher than oh. inside the cell. So calcium intracellular is an important signaling molecule. And one of the uh, functions that it does when it is, is activated like that is it increases the levels of superoxide and nitric oxide, which is not a good combination at all because you, you probably... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a it 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 basically forms almost instantaneously, and I do mean instantaneously, into peroxynitrite, which is a free, not a free oxygen, free reactive oxygen species, reactive nitrogen species. But it, and it's really bad. It's one of the worst in your body, probably collectively worse than hydroxyl free radical. Not as damaging per unit molecule, but it lives a thousand times longer, so it's able to travel throughout the whole system. So this these this peroxynitrate level increases, which all also furthers this oxidative damage. So that's another mechanism it has. And uh, so that's, that's why I'm so diligent and obsessive about 
Good. warning people about this because it's a simple thing. And, and from my view, you know, historically with correlations in epidemiology, th there's no other variable that appears to be the culprit other than this. It's certainly not sugar intake. It's not carb ingestion at all in any way, shape or form. I mean, there's, there's correlations to it, but the correlations would be processed foods. And you know what's <clears throat> in higher concentration of processed foods than sugar? Linoleic acid, yeah. Linoleic yeah. acid or seed oils, yeah. So it's there's it's it comes together and it and it's unfairly vilified typically. Uh, when you're metabolic and healthy, it's definitely an issue, and you have to control it until you are healthy. But once you're healthy, you know, healthy you sugar. You have another fish to fry. Once you get that metabolic flexibility, you need to go. After oh yeah. Acid. And you told me you taught me this that it takes years to clear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah the half life of linoleic acid in your body is 650 days, but you know, you're going to feel better within a few weeks, a few months. It, but if you were really obsessive and diligent and sought to minimize or limit your intake of linoleic acid to below five grams a day at a minimum, I've gotten mine to below two grams a day. Exactly. Um, you, it, under three years, it would take to get pretty healthy levels, like way under 5%, maybe even 3%. Ideally you want to be somewhere between one and 2%, which was the historical norms, the norm yeah. of anyone who lived before 1870. Pretty much anyone, any human on the planet had that level. Good old post-industrial food revolution, right? Yeah. I mean, my gosh, Absolutely. we just changed everything. And, and then what we feed our animals. So I'm curious if you've seen linoleic acid levels much higher in the corn-fed, I mean, I would assume in the corn-fed, you know, uh, grain-fed animals versus those who are living on the well, not not necessarily. It depends on the animal. So okay. the animals can be divided into two broad categories. One is a ruminant. The other is a non-ruminant. The ruminant has multiple chambers in their stomach. These chambers harbor bacteria, which are responsible and have the capacity, capability to convert a polyunsaturated fat to a saturated or monounsaturated fat. So that's why a cow or a sheep, uh, a lamb, uh, bison, they when they eat, they're fed grains. They can be given grains their entire life, entire life, which is not healthy for them in any way, shape or form. I'm not a, yeah. encouraging that, but it is done. But the, the end result is instead of a 2% linoleic acid, they'll have a 3%. I mean, it goes up marginally high. I mean, it's, it's less than double. It's probably 25 to 50% higher. So yes, you do not want grain fed beef because they're typically, the grain is contaminated with glyphosate and other issues. So you want grass fed ideally would be the best. But if you're between a rock and a hard place, you know, you could have it. And and if you know, people go out to uh, to restaurants and, you know, for from a lake acid perspective, like a steakhouse would be one of the better places because you can get a decent steak. And assuming they don't put any seed oils on the steak some of them would you have to be really careful and the server food server has to be your friend and and uh, your uh, partner in making sure that no one throws any damaging seed oils on your food because it's they're well-intentioned but you know to them there's no issue you know, they, they're not aware of this this is like smoking was in the in the huh? the night early 1900s you know some people thought it was a problem but virtually no one did Interesting. I love it. So it's basically, you're telling me the ruminants have this sort of amazing alchemy in their guts that can mm -hmm. transform it 
and, and that it's not so passed on to us. But like you said, ideally gold standard, we'd want to eat better, you know, choices on that. But this is just fascinating. And, you know, I think this is what is so wild is when a lot of people move into a carb restricted world, uh, they do not pay attention, at least historically, when I've spoken at various low carb communities, ketogenic communities, I call it dirty keto or dirty low carb, because they often jump right into heavily processed seed oil bars and things to, to lower their carb intake, which is the fuel on an open fire in that piece. So I think that's important to discuss, just like folks who are uh, lowering their linoleic acid, if you're also not dealing with your insulin resistance patterns, you're in trouble. And the cool thing, my experience, because we do this with all of our patients is we push them both to go, you know, to lower their linoleic acid intake and lower their insulin levels from the get-go. I think going at that parallel path gives you the biggest bang for your buck. And then you're able to become more metabolically flexible quicker. And I think you're giving us an understanding when I may have a patient who's really was gung-ho on getting on the low carb, but didn't start to make the adjustments in their fat, they're not going to be as successful as those patients who were more mindful of the fat, the type of fats they intake, they take in. So this is really helpful for folks to understand that um, I think Dr. Mercola is really one of the only people really shouting at the rooftops right now about this issue of the, the PUFAs, the linoleic acid, and its damaging effect on our metabolic health and specifically on our mitochondria, which is at the root of all of the diseased issues we're dealing with on the planet today. Yeah, most natural medical physicians understand that cereals are, are, need to be avoided. It would be the rare and foolishly inept physician who doesn't understand that. Uh, but conventional medicine feels the exact opposite. They've been brainwashed since the 50s with the Ansel Keys paradigm that these seed oils are really highly beneficial, useful. They protect you. They improve your cardiovascular health. Why? Because they lower cholesterol. Do they lower cholesterol? They absolutely do. Is that healthy? Absolutely not. You know, because uh, it does it in a way that causes long-term damage. So, uh, but that is one of their artifacts. They will lower your cholesterol level. There's no question. And that, that uh, is ignorantly and naively assumed to be a beneficial thing. It's not because it, incre it actually increases your risk of cardiovascular disease, not because the cholesterol is lower, but because this, these seed oils get integrated into the LDL and they become oxidized and they start the, the atherogenic process, not in the plaque out inside the blood lumen, but actually within the vessel vascular wall itself. That's so it, it just, and it just destroys mitochondrial function. It's just very bad thing. But interesting, low fat can be pretty helpful. Interest, you know, Denise Minger did a, I just oh, ran yeah. on did a, uh, a lecture she gave like eight years ago in Iceland, and it was about low fat. And she had this hypothesis that ultra low fat, we're talking under 10%, which is unsustainable. That's not a long-term healthy goal, but just like low carb can be right. highly therapeutic, low fat can be equally therapeutic and, and literally cause people to resolve their diabetes, resolve their obesity, autoimmune diseases, MS disappears. I mean, there's, there's loads of clinicians who have successfully in, incorporated these approaches. And it is really, and you can't, you can argue with it, but you'd be foolish to because the data is there. I mean, people are getting better. Their lives are being changed by these strategies. So the the goal is to really understand what's happening with those. And I'm not an advocate of a low-fat diet. I'm not an advocate of low-carb diet. But, but for short-term, these interventions may be highly therapeutic. 
Yeah. I think it's really interesting because when I was in med school in the 90s, the, the diet of choice for MS was the Swank diet. Yeah, absolutely. That that was one of the researchers she used to as an example. I mean, he he reversed MS. Right. And I had patients who adhered to that and had great success. And I mm -hmm. have patients today who follow Terry Walls and are doing basically a, a therapeutic ketogenic diet and mm -hmm. are having success. So it's like where I'm curious and as a clinician and a researcher, I mean, of course, I'm looking at each patient individually and we're adjusting mm -hmm. accordingly and we're looking at their SNPs and we're looking at their blood biopsies and we're looking at their labs and their functional medicine. Like you mentioned earlier, um, uh, you know, uh, rattled off a variety of different amino acids and metabolites, which we test on organic acids profile, which really gives you a lovely in the moment snapshot of how someone's utilizing their fats, their, their carbs, their proteins, and also what's going on in their gut can really give us a snapshot of what's happening with the microbiome. So that's another favorite test we have. In fact, we're working um, in a lab, we're building out or working to build out a lab where we can test this more in real time um, because this is something that is so transient and responds day by day. So we're looking at this metabolomics and this mitochondrial respiratory uh, response to what we're putting in in real time so we can start to measure that and know, because I suspect that, I mean, my gosh, this is why um, Richard Feynman's book, Nutrition in Crisis, was so beautiful. Is like, how can you say that a carbohydrate rich diet and a carbohydrate restricted diet have the same benefit at the end of the day? Or a keto terry or like a, you know, even a carnivore and a vegan have the same results at the end of the day? Yeah, they frequently so, do. It's, it's that place where it's like, it's the individuality. It's what your body needs in this moment. Like we were talking right before the show of a gentleman who's going through a cancer surgery that is, was spent years being severely protein malnourished. And it's what, you know, that we're on one level, all the longevity researchers will tell you that that guy should be living longer than all of us because, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, restricting his calorie restricted. Right. Yeah. Right. And mTOR, mTOR was minimally activated, which is supposed yeah. to be the big bad guy for increasing risk of cancer. Yeah. And so it's just fascinating to me that we will probably be in these wars, these discussions, these confusing, you know, conundrums for forever until we can figure out a way to really test in real time what's going on with somebody, both at the cellular level and at the more macrophysiologic level to understand what's right. I don't suspect there's a single right diet. I certainly suspect that we would do far better to eat what we evolved with. <laughs> you know, I think which is that's not a lot, lot of seed oils. There's no question. Exactly. No one involved with that. Thank you. And not high fructose corn syrup and not yeah. a constant 24-7 access to everything all the time, no matter where you live in the world. Those are things our body's like, I don't even know what to do with this information. And so that gums up the metabolic works just as much because we have, we're overfed and deeply undernourished. And I think that's, that's the crux of it. So you had mentioned uh, this mitochondrial lab that you're putting together, and uh, I'm assuming it's going to be in Arizona. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So you, we had talked when we had talked in Orlando. You had mentioned that you were getting some property there, or have the property already, and actually planning and building is an educational facility. Is actually a treatment facility for people with cancer. There's two separate. So initially, the lab will be our first um, start, which is happening in the Phoenix area because we've got access to amazing scientists and research 
uh, you know, assistance and whatnot because of, of it's in a medical complex that's also in an Arizona State University complex. We have access to a lot of people needing to do their postdoc work and um, preclinical work, et cetera. So that's where that's starting. But just south of that, an hour and a half south of that on a piece of 1,200-acre property, a big regenerative farming, organic farming project, we've been gifted a chunk of land to build our Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health Hospital and Research Center, which is the first of its kind, truly um, a residential, truly integrative oncology hospital and research institute. There are places where you can go and stay, um, you know, and get quote unquote, alternative therapy, but most of them are separated out. You can't also get your metronomic chemo, your biopsy, your tissue assays, along with your hyperbarics, your hyperthermia, your mistletoe, along with your dietary interventions that are specific to your N of one. You kind of have to go all like multiple places to get all of that taken care of today. And maybe even multiple countries because we're limited to some of the things we can access here in the United States. So we want to have a, a place where people can actually come do a deep dive assessment and actually start their treatment and then be able to go back home to wherever it is. So we are envisioning folks staying with us two to three weeks to get the full workup, initiate the program, and then getting them sent back home to the growing number of of clinicians we are training worldwide in how to support patients from this metabolic approach. So it's a it's it's more than just a hospital or a clinic. It's more than just a lab. It's a movement. It's about changing healthcare as we know it, and it's about um, impacting oncology outcomes in a way that we've never been able to when, do before. When do you anticipate the the structure will be up and running? Is it like three years, four years, five years? Once we have the funding, we could be up and running in 18 months. And we're actively in our capital campaign for the nonprofit aspect of the hospital in the lab. We also have for-profit aspects, our data platform that we're also building, the R&D, the products that are coming out of our lab, those all have investment opportunities. The wellness destination component of the campus um, have some investment opportunities for people if you want an ROI. But we have a lot of um, interested family foundations that unfortunately have walked this path with their loved ones and, mm -hmm. and saw that just standard of care wasn't enough or just alternative care wasn't enough. And there's really never been a place where they've been so elegantly woven together in an innovative and upgraded way. And we're very excited about that. So we are hopeful that we will get word on funding um, in the mm -hmm. next in the next few weeks. Um, but we're also will constantly be because our fundraising, it's a nonprofit hospital, and we're not going to be taking insurance. We're not stepping yeah, into yeah. model. That's the only way we can be effective, honestly. And so we'll yeah, yeah. fundraising for patient um, grants so that patients that don't have the means are able to access this type of care because right now, truly integrative oncology care is only available to those with resources. And that shouldn't be the case. Yeah. So, um, it would be far wiser to donate significant portions of someone loved one's estate yeah. to a, a venture like this rather than the American Cancer Society, which is the epitome of doing the wrong thing. Experience still got the wrong round, wrong path, unfortunately. And I know it. Yeah. I know it means well, but when you look at the the reality of a lot of those ribbon, you know, foundation, you know, events and the awareness campaigns, the Susan majority, Coleman. Yeah, the majority of those funds go to paying for the, the the people running it, right? It doesn't go into actually changing research or changing a patient's outcome. And ours, we are being very transparent that as you know, we are putting the vast majority of it 
you know, we still have to cover our, our overhead and whatnot, but we're putting the lion's share of it directly into uh, patient grants to get access sure. to this type of care. It's so important so, you mentioning that. What would uh, prevent the local authorities and medical boards from coming in and shutting you down because many of these interventions are illegal in the United States. Uh, my guess is, and I haven't, we haven't discussed this, is that Arizona is one of the usual states that have a pretty broad, restricted homeopathic license, yeah. which is you know easy to get if you're a licensed medical professional. Yeah. And that homeopathic license gives you a wide variety of options that are typically, typically illegal to do under the regular licensing boards. That's a really great question. And for the 30 years that I've been on this mission to build this facility, I did my homework, right? I've had to go and figure out what mm -hmm. are the most open-minded states of the union. And that would be Florida, Nevada, or excuse me, um, of, of medicine. That would yeah. be um, Arizona, Nevada, and California. California, mm -hmm. no way. There's just, first of all, cost prohibited. prohibited. Oh red tape of all kinds of things is just it's just off the table right they might be very pro provocative with what they're doing but it's not an environment that's friendly to what we want to build unfortunately nobody really wanted to live in nevada so that was off the table we also wanted to be in uh, proximity to mexico um, if we did need to if we had even with all of our ducks in a row there's still that possibility of someone coming in trying to shut us down. So we didn't want to have a loss of our continuity of care. So we've set up a model that we could have kind of a sister campus um, across the border if need be. But because we are a research institute as well, um, we will we have multiple IRBs to be doing what we're doing. And to Dr. Mercola's point, in Arizona, naturopaths can offer chemotherapy, deliver babies, do surgery. Med medical doctors can do acupuncture, homeopathy, and nutritional counseling. It is incredibly integrative there. And then you have multiple medical schools, DO schools, naturopathic schools. You also have an integrative medicine program at U of A, which is our neighbor. You have um, major universities. So there's a, a desire to do things differently. And it's a little bit, I think it's just the West, you know, a little bit renegade, a little bit rebel, a little bit, let's get out of the sandbox and do something different. And also Arizona is one of the handful of states that you can just build a hospital. Like it's not, you don't have to go through decades and decades of permitting and looking at this. We're also in an area that already the county and the cities around us are already welcoming us with open arms. And the person who owns our land has been a long-term uh, builder in in Arizona, really well known for what he's done. And this is his legacy project. He's in his early 80s now. And this is what he wants to leave the world in a better place. He made his fortunes in building things that might have been extracting of the earth. Now he's doing something that's giving back in a pretty profound way. Sure. And his family is committed to carrying that legacy forward. All right. Well, thanks for that diversion. Um, and maybe we can shuffle back to metabolic health. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So, um, and I, I forgot where we took left off with respect to, I think it was the discussing the variables. Yeah. When you can transition back to a higher carb. So, and you, you enumerated a wide variety of them, but I'm wondering if there's any specific ones, you know, handful or less that, uh, you know, if, if you looked at those and monitored those pretty regularly, you can get a clue as to, well, maybe it's time to increase your carbohydrate intake. Love it. I think that's really, I think, I think the simple would be an HRV because that's going to show you how deeply you're, that's going to really show you the interplay between stress and insulin. 
and it's going to really help how, you. How do you HRV is not necessarily that simple. It's, a, it's an elegant test, but there's so many ways to measure it. If it starts to drop below 70, you've got some issues, right? Mm -hmm. You really want it above 70 to show that you've got optimal kind of um, uh, regulation of your nervous system and of your metabolic system. It's a very elegant, simple thing. And so people can really watch themselves. And there's so many different tools on the market today that you can use. It's it's just kind of work with it. Or a ring is probably the simplest. Exactly. Or a ring is excellent. A lot of people use BioStrap. Um, some use Fitbit. There's a lot of different ones. Oh, no, you shouldn't be using Fitbit. Well, because of the rate, are you talking with the radiation burns? No, um, I mean, the Bluetooth, uh, I don't think you can put it in airplane mode, but more importantly, in August of 2019, Fitbit was purchased by Google. So huh. all your dad. You know, yeah. Thank you. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You want you want your own data. You want to keep your own data. So that's important. Yeah, Google's got it. And they will use it to manipulate and brainwash you in any way, shape, or form that they can. No, so wait. no bueno Fitbit. <laughs> Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Learned huge. This is a big one for me today. The other one is a, a CGM is a nice one, especially when someone's starting to transition after they've become metabolically flexible they've got oh, before, but, but, let, yeah. let me still stick yeah. on hrv so sure. what tricks and tips do you in, implement to optimize or improve someone's hrv i love it so i'm i'm simple i want to watch the sunrise and the sunset every day mm -hmm. that's one way to sort of reset your circadian rhythm taking in that that red frequency optimize circadian rhythm going to bed at the right time exactly. consistently exactly uh, Getting up at the right time. Exactly. I want a. I want at least two hours between your last meal and your going to bed. I want you to take a walk after each of your meals, even if it's only 10 minutes, just to help your body process, metabolize all that new input that you put in. I want to make sure you're having good sleep hygiene. I want to make sure there's absolutely no light outside of moonlight you know, that might be coming in or starlight coming into your space. I want to make sure there's no electronics in your sleeping space. You know, turn off your Wi-Fi. You can get kill switches for that part of your house where your bedrooms are. Um, you can do things like that. You can make sure you, if you are, if you have to be on any screens after sunset or before sunrise, I want you doing the best you can to mitigate that light, you know, red lights everywhere, wear your red light glasses a lot of people say that you know what's you know easier than red you know what's easier than red light glasses let's hear it well this is assuming you're using uh, a large screen which most people would do i mean that's more convenient than looking at your computer screen so you can have it operate as a computer monitor most of them have an hdmi input so it's a monitor and in monitor mode it does a number of clever things uh to optimize your circadian rhythm one is that typically at least on the lg oled that i'm using it immediately shuts down the, the bluetooth transmitter so there's Love no it. bluetooth because almost every new tv is a smart tv yeah. that, you, that you can't turn off it unlike your your airplane mode in your phone it does not do that but for some reason when at least lg does it and i suspect maybe there's other models i haven't done a careful evaluation of all the different brands out there but lg for sure there's no Bluetooth. But most importantly, if you're using a computer as a display to generate what you're viewing, yeah. and there's a lot of stuff to watch on, on YouTube and other you know podcasts and things, uh, then you can use a, a blue blocker software device. And the best I one out there. Flux or which one do you like? 
Well, the best one is Iris. I R I S. Yes, yes, yeah. Iris is the best. It blows away. What was the other one you said? Uh, I flux or E flux. I flux. Yeah, yeah. I flux. Yeah. This is, yeah. This this is the best one. So so essentially, you know, if you're at this time of year, we're progressing towards much shorter nights uh, or days rather. So you know, it starts to get dark well before you go to bed. So it'll be like red and white when you're watching it, which is safe. It's just actually, you don't need to wear any glasses because I love it. the, you're, it's not generating any blue light. I mean, you can, tur- you can, you can play with Iris. If you want a little blue light, you can to see things in more detail, but you can pretty much make it red and white if you wanted that's to. Good. That's so good. And that's such, it's a way because we are, you know, we are still, we still want to be living on this planet and interacting, mm-hmm. you know, with our families and whatnot. And that's often a very social connecting time is in front of screen time in the evening. And so that's a really good way to shift it. It's going to be visually different, but you'll get accustomed to it quickly. And mm-hmm. trying to shut down, like have some hard rules about your your screen time um, is really important. And then one little kind of teaser I talked about. What, what are the hard rules? Um, I don't, I just really like, I do not get on my um, electronics. Like this is your, because today I'm at 7.30 in the morning, my time when you and I started, this is, I usually don't like to turn on my screens until 9am after I've mm-hmm. been up, done my exercise, taken my walk, had my sun. Yeah. So I tried to do that, but you know, there's you, life happens, right? So right. when I'm, when I'm in my normal routine, I avoid that. And I try and shut it down after 6pm so that I can be in that zone unless I'm in some really big deadlines. And so that's kind of my personal rule. You'll everyone kind of knows what works well for them. My blood sugar does go up in front of screen time, so I can watch that on a CGM. Uh, but usually, I'm also really engaged. You know, I'm a pretty excitable person, so I think that might be part of it as well. But one other clue I ask people is: Do you have a difficult time falling asleep? If they have a difficult time falling asleep, that's a metabolic insulin issue more often than not. And if you have a hard time staying asleep, so if you wake often after you've gone deep into sleep, that often suggests a cortisol problem. And so to your point, doc, that's where we start to go, okay, your cortisol is now spiking. You might need a little more carbohydrate into your evening meal to help you keep that cortisol down throughout the night. So those are just some of the little hacks or, or you that we've learned the over the years in, in, in playing with our, our clients uh, around that. Adrenal fatigue, which is the low cortisol. Yeah. Yeah. So the low, yeah, when the cortisol, or well, actually you wake when the cortisol spikes, which can often be related to too low of blood sugar. Mm-hmm. So oh, absolutely. It frequently is, especially when you're low carb. Exactly. Because that's, the cortisol is designed as your rescue mechanism to keep you alive because if your blood sugar drops below a certain level, and it's different depending on how adapted, metabolically adapted you are and your ability to generate ketones. I mean, exactly. for some people, it could be in the 20s or 30s. Exactly. Other people, they're dead in the 50s, you know, exactly. Exactly. because they're not, not able to generate ketones to keep their brain alive. But exactly. uh, when it goes that low, you will die. So unless you have these rescue mechanisms, what that, so yeah. there's no question that at some point you will die if your blood sugar. So that's why you make cortisol. It, right. it ke- keeps you alive. It's a, exactly it's not yeah. something you want to eliminate. It's something that's very good. But you what you know why be running on stress hormones all the time when you don't need to? That's just not a good good strategy for long term health. No, 
And that's just it. So the labs will give us the big picture, right, that we're doing those monthly labs and those quarterly labs. But the living laboratory aspect between CR, you know, the HRVs and the continuous glucose monitors and watching just your day-to-day rhythm and your day-to-day like sleep process, that's going to be the feedback we need to know, okay, it's probably time to adjust your macros that is more life-giving and life-supporting versus taking away. It's We've gone in, we've done our job, we've insulin restricted. Now it's time to you know, tackle the other big, the other big drivers of what's going on for those folks. So I think it's just this, this place where we always talk about the three S's, sugar, sex, and stress. So hormonal implications, the insulin implications and the, um, stress response implications. If you're, if you don't deal with all three of them, you're kind of dead in the water. It's, it's not going to allow you to make the impact you want on your clinical outcomes. Well, it's, it's pretty fascinating and comprehensive, uh, approach. So yeah. And you seem to get pretty good results with it. I do, Doc. And that's the thing is what I love is, like you, the way I think today is different than what I knew two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And what I so appreciate about these types of conversations we're able to have here and in the public is that we're constantly learning. Each time we think we have it figured out, (laughs) I get humbled, right? It's like, oh, nope, something to consider. <laughs> so I think that's what's, I just want people to be encouraged to understand that you've got to, you've got to just be willing to be flexible also in your understanding of things, not mm-hmm. just all the flexibility, but be flexible to understand your own feedback loops, your own body's cries for help, your own body's responses to whatever therapeutic intervention you're using and don't follow dogma, follow your own data. Yeah. Yeah. That lack of humility and, and, intellectual hubris that most physicians have is just uh, a rapid sh- uh, shortcut to devastating clinical results <laughs> just because they're not open to these these novel approaches and they lost their flexibility because they i believe one of the biggest variables is they've been effectively such a fe- so effectively brainwashed by the propaganda from the drugs drug companies and uh, you know the drug companies that are extended into the peer reviewed journals their their own peers the hospital reviews the standard of care there's a lot of variables going on that reinforce that intellectual hubris Definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. And, you know, I can remember when I was in med school back in the early nineties, um, their textbooks did not have any drug ads. They all do today. Many of them. <laughs> so, so many commercials on TV. Totally. And that's not even legal in other parts of the world. I know most of the world It's only in New Zealand and the U S where it's legal. So strange. And then to have like entire wings of hospitals or research institutes that are funded by drug companies. I mean, it's going to be really hard to overcome that, uh, conflict of interest. Uh, even if you try to come at it the best you can, there's that filter. So we have to try and find, I mean, that's why we're also building this labs. We want to be an agnostic lab asking questions. We're not going in with our expectations of what we want to see. We're going in saying, we yeah. have no idea. Tell us what we're seeing, show us the way. And so that's a very different approach to research as well. Yeah. I'm looking forward to when that lab's completed because Ew, yeah. you have some ambitious goals. And one of them is to be developing the most sophisticated commercial assay to assess mitochondrial function because re- we really don't have a good tool to do that now. We just don't outside of a research lab. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got, you know, we've got, like you said, we've got some good surrogates, but we, we think we, we've got some pretty good ideas that we're on the right track to get something that actually is more tangible and in the moment testing that can really help, uh, help elucidate what's really happening with the patient to actually show us if we're being effective 
with yeah. whatever therapies we're using and to also give us a, an early warning sign if we need to change gears. I think that's one of the big things, especially in the oncology world. By the yeah. time it's big enough and loud enough to capture our attention that, hey, we're steered off the road, that can be life taking for many people. And so we want to be ahead of that curve. For sure. Do, do, you, do you have some imp- insights or impressions initially that the there is a homogenous function m- distribution of mitochondria with respect to their function so that the mitochondria in one tissue is essentially equivalent to the in other tissues or, there, or is there going to be a wide disparity so that you have to almost be tissue specific to measure your measure the specific mitochondria? I suspect the latter. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's difficult to say blanket, just give this one therapy and it's yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's what's going to be interesting is even some of the novel delivery systems we're looking at, we can even specifically target specific mitochondria you know, tissues and specific um, my, with certain specific mitochondria. And so that's what I'm excited is I think that we are really going to get to a very um, intricate um, and specific approach here, not too long, um, you know, which is, is exciting to me to see where, where this next step is going to do for, for medicine in general, but oncology in particular. And, and even the world, one of our big researchers, he's also really big in the autism space. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much at this mitochondrial level. We've got a lot of interest and passion to, to get some answers to know how to individuate the therapies in a way that's meaningful. Yeah. And, and, and stop getting that confusion of like, well, why does it work in this person and not in this person? And why does this diet work here and not here? I think we're yeah. going to be able to get the, get much closer to those answers. So, um, what practical step can someone take to celebrate metabolic health day in October 10th? First of all, my, the best thing I think anybody could do on metabolic health day is to assess their metabolic health. Don't assume, especially when Dr. Joe is telling you that less than 5% of us are metabolically healthy. And so I would encourage you, if you don't have a physician already, there's plenty of direct-to-consumer labs out there. There are, one of our partners is a lab that even offers greater discounts than that. That's one of the people supporting this Metabolic Health Day. We're not attached to where you do these labs. Maybe your physician is going to be part of this. We have a lot of clinics and hospitals joining this movement as well. Um, We have one group that's getting ready to do a summit where they're really offering people a great discount on metabolic um, health assessment. And so simply speaking, you know, get your CDC, your CMP, your, um, uh, fasting insulin, at the very least, that's where I'd start. And then if you want to look a little deeper, add your um, C-reactive protein, your high sensitivity or quantitative C-reactive protein to get a sense of your inflammatory response. That's a surrogate for a lot of things going on and a vitamin D level. That's my favorite just to like, just get a sense of what your baseline is to know how your body's even utilizing certain fats um, and how it's, it's, um, self-regulating with insulin, self-regulating with cortisol, self-regulating with inflammation and immune function. So that would be a great place that would help your clinicians, myself included, be able to better support you and help you understand how hard you have to work to bring yourself back into balance. I think that's very illuminating for folks who think they're healthy because if I had a dollar for every time a patient said I was healthy until I got cancer, I could have retired a very long time ago. We could have built this hospital years ago. And so I want people to use that day of awareness, not just like, Oh, yep. It's the day. Do something about it. Take action now. Don't wait. Don't wait. So I I love the HSCRP and I've just recently established a LabCorp account, which is there's only two major commercial labs in the U S LabCorp and Quest. Mm -hmm. And in LabCorp, there's, there's probably a half a dozen or more 
types of CRP that your physician could order. But if you order one that's called the cardiac uh, CRP, C-reactive protein, it's about the same price as a quantitative one. And you'll get the number down to the second digit, you know, so it's really, really accurate. And because it's kind of meaningless if it says less than one. I mean, it's good, but it's not, you know, it's not the level you want to know. Because there's a big difference between 0.15 and 0.8. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that test, I mean, it costs a physician somewhere about $10. So it's, it should be pretty inexpensive to do. So anyway, that's a good test. Anything else other than getting your lab test for that to celebrate? I just want people to go out and like, don't go out and celebrate with, you know, a, a, a a big, you know, like junky, like Dairy Queen, you know, blizzard. Like that's just like all the fake oils, all the different things. Be conscious of what you're putting into your body. You know, start to get curious about reading your your labels on your food and see how much of that linoleic acid is sneaking in. See how much processed food is still hiding out in your fridge, your freezer, and your pantry and get rid of it. Go back to what your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents were eating is a simple strategy to just start weeding things out of your life so you can really impact change in your mitochondria. All right. Sounds terrific. All right. Well, thanks, Sue, for everything that you are doing. Uh, Really appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, for establishing this novel day to help us help the population wake up to realize we've got to recover our metabolic health. Absolutely. Thank you for all you do in the metabolic health space in, in, uh, in particular, Doc. So really appreciate it.